truly have a blessed Redeemer. And you and I know that our Redeemer lives. That's why Jonathan can sing that song with meaning and passion. That's why all of us can participate and minister to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our heart for the Lord because we actually have a message of hope. Jesus didn't just go to the cross and die. He rose again. As a young man, D.L. Moody was often called upon to preach a funeral. And one time, he decided to hunt through all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, trying to find one of Christ's funeral sermons. But he searched in vain. He only found that Christ broke up every funeral he ever attended. Death could not exist where he was. Where the dead heard his voice, they sprang to life. One of those funerals, Jesus said these words to his grieving friends who had just lost their precious and dying brother. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He's not just saying, I have the ability to raise Lazarus, your brother, from the dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And if you believe in me, you will never die. Do you believe this? Mary and Martha, this statement in John 11 would truly come to life as their brother and the grave clothes that they wrapped him in would walk out of the grave. But there was coming another scene where another man, the man Christ Jesus, would march out of the grave and no one would have to roll away the stone this time for him. He would emerge victorious from the dead Because He is the resurrection and the life. This past March, I had the opportunity to go to Israel and see the garden tomb and Golgotha and so many other sites. As you approach that tomb, you start to picture what was it like on that resurrection morning when blinding light just came out of the tomb, and Christ emerged victorious over sin, death, hell, and Satan. As we just sang, death could not hold its prey. <laughs> he arose. I began to ponder this, this question, and I want to pose it to you this morning. Have you experienced the resurrected life? Has Christ brought you from death to life? If he has, and that is his desire, he's redeemed you from your sin. But if he has, he also desires for you to live in light of that resurrection. It's not just securing your home in heaven and your eternity, but also there's this life from point A to point B until you get to heaven. 
How do you walk in light of something that has so transformed your life like the resurrection? Well, there's a passage of Scripture, among others, that we can look at this morning to find that answer. Turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3. Appreciate PJ reading it to you. We're going to be looking at living the resurrected life. What does that look like? When I'm living out the fact that Christ has risen. As was read to you, you see the last part of this chapter deals with Christ's final triumph where He will transform our lowly bodies into His glorious body. When Christ will subject all things to Himself with His mighty, unlimited, supreme power. But leading up to that is this life that He's called us to live. Not of defeat, but victory. Not dwelling on the past of our failures and even some of the successes we've had, but pushing on for what is before us, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. But it begins with seeing the things of this life rightly. So the first point this morning is in living the resurrected life. The resurrected life prizes the surpassing value of losing all to know Christ. The resurrected life prizes the surpassing value of losing all to know Christ. Look if you would in verse 7. After listing this portrait of himself as a Pharisee to as someone who was of the right family, of the one who did everything the way you're supposed to do, who even persecuted the church, who was even a zealous Pharisee, outshining the rest, being blameless when it came to the law. What he says in verse 7 is just shocking. He paints a strikingly different picture for us. He says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. Even his most valuable assets in the flesh are now not as assets in the gain column, but they're liabilities in the loss column. He considers even his most valuable assets in the flesh to be liabilities in light of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, his Lord. Notice this. Paul says here, I've accumulated a lot of things. Circumcised the eighth day, nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, an esteemed tribe to be sure. Kept the tradition as a Pharisee. Tried to keep the law. Was viewed as blameless. And he says, for all these things, my salvation has built, been built upon my ritual, my race, my rank, my tradition, my religion, my sincerity, and my works. But when I met Christ, all of that was seen as a liability. It was loss. And I will gladly give it up for the sake of Christ. As Paul describes his personal experience in the new life in Christ, he gives us a theological outline, if you will, for the entire scope of salvation. Justification, receiving righteousness from God. Sanctification, the power of His resurrection working through us. Participating in sufferings and then being glorified one day. 
And verse 11, attaining to the resurrection of the dead, which we all look forward to as Christians. But as Paul describes this lifestyle of loss, he it's really following the same teaching of Jesus, isn't it? Think of Matthew 13. Christ tells of a man who finds a treasure, sells everything he has to buy it. Where is this treasure found? It has been buried in some field. If this was a true story, we would think this man is ridiculous. That he's out of his mind to sell everything that your family owns for something that is buried in a field somewhere. But yet this man does it anyway. And he finds that treasure to be worth more than all of his possessions combined. The treasure is Christ. The pearl is Christ. The salvation that he is looking for comes through him. And that man is satisfied by giving up everything for Christ. Jesus speaks again about this in Matthew 16. For whoever wishes to save his life shall what? Lose it. That doesn't make sense to us. Throw it away? Give it away? Why? If you wish to save your life, you should preserve it. You should keep it close to you. Live every day for yourself. Live every day to please yourself. Live every day to accumulate stuff for yourself. It says, For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And the penetrating question, what will you give in exchange for your soul? See, the person who comes to God is the person who's willing to pay whatever God requires, whatever the price, whatever the cost, to abandon everything for Jesus. We're not just talking about missionaries who go to Africa. We're talking about you. We're talking about me. When I was thinking about this subject of loss, I was reminded of my grandfather, who is now in his mid-90s, telling me a story of the stock market crash of 1929. He was alive when that, te- when that took place. It's still vivid in his mind. There was mass panic throughout the country, he would, he would tell me. In 1928, he said he remembers his parents talking about this. Herbert Hoover stood up on his campaign trail and made one of the most impossible promises any campaigner has made, at least up to this point. There will be an end to poverty as we know it, and everyone will have the opportunity to be rich. Only a year later, the stock market would crash. It wasn't just like people lost a little bit of their stock, that only a few people lost their, their homes. This touched everybody. On October 29, 1929, there were people who actually woke up that morning as millionaires would eventually be paupers and begging for bread by the end of the year. People lost their homes. The money that had taken a lifetime to save. Companies that were worth millions were now nothing. Corporations plummeted to the bottom. One vice president of a radio corporation jumped to his death from the window of a Manhattan hotel in New York. His note read this, We are now broke. Last April, I was worth $100,000. Now I am 24000 in the red. Life 
is not worth living. But Paul says, I want to count everything but loss. Even if my whole life crashes, even if I have nothing, it is nothing in comparison to the surpassing gain of knowing Jesus. We've come to realize that losses are inherently bad or inherently wrong. But here Paul says he counts all the gains he had in this life as loss. And losing all did not make him despair of his life, but it actually freed him to gain the only thing that was worth having, the resurrected life of Jesus Christ in him. Notice this. John MacArthur points this out in his commentary. Notice that Paul didn't say, I had something good and now I'm going to get something better. This is a total loss. This is not an asset. This is a liability. It's not that he's traded something good, this world, for something better. It is trading something that is worth nothing for something that is of surpassing value, priceless value. There's a sense in which Paul says, I've spent all my life in religious achievement, but I have to lose it in order to gain Christ. Whatever it is that I've spent my life accumulating, even if I gain the world, it would mean that mean nothing if I lost Christ. So I will give it all in exchange for Him. Christ fills all of Paul's vision. Does He fill your vision this morning? Does He fill my vision this morning? Is He all that you see? Or is Jesus something that we sprinkle into our life? Is Jesus something we add to our already worldly and pursuit and lifestyle? Or does He totally replace that in our lives? Where we only see Him. This is why Christ said in his, in his word to His disciples, you must deny, my, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Me. This is the Gospel right in front of us. The beginning of the resurrected life. Those things which were gained to Me, I counted as lost for Christ. And He says, but more than that, more than loss, more than giving up everything, Paul, yes, he even takes it up another notch. He says, more than that, I stress this to you. I am I'm begging you. More than that, I count all things to be lost. Not just his religious achievements, but everything else in comparison to the life I have in Christ and knowing him. Paul interjects something here that's very graphic for us. In the New King James, it's been smoothed out for us. Rubbish is what he calls everything else in this life. Other translations, you'll actually read the word dung. We don't want to talk about dung on Sunday morning, do we? But yet that's what Paul is telling us that this world is in comparison to Christ. What if we had that perspective? What if we woke up tomorrow and viewed everything in this life that wants to capture our attention? The new iPhone 6, got to have it right this month. Right? You're already planning it. People are sleeping outside of Apple right now, Apple's headquarters, in sleeping bags, waiting for this phone to come out. What if, what if we viewed all of those things as dung, as rubbish, in comparison to knowing Jesus? 
In case you're wondering, that's my own lunchbox that I just stepped in. Technology, whatever it is that has captured your, your gaze. It's interesting, in the broad expanse of the northern Pacific Ocean, there exists a slow-moving oceanic desert of sorts filled with plankton and fish. However, fishermen and sailors rarely pass through it. Why, must you ask? Because this area is filled up with mostly one thing, trash. Millions of pounds of it. Most of it, plastic. It is the largest landfill in the world, and it floats in the middle of the ocean. This massive trash is also called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. There are portions of this floating dump that scientists say that they estimate is two times bigger than Texas. It is like Paul is comparing all of, you can just think of everything in this world as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. It's just, it's just a floating dump of nothing in comparison to knowing Jesus. And this knowledge he's talking about, he'll bring it up again in verse 10, is an experiential knowledge. The word gnosko, gnosis, to know by experience, to know in a way that shapes my life. I consider all of that to be absolute refuse, garbage, utterly worthless and repulsive. Usually by the time it gets to about Thursday evening, I've about had enough of my trash can. With five people in our family, we fill that thing up pretty quickly. And when I'm taking out the last trash bag and I'm going to take the trash to the street for Friday morning, it is all I can do sometimes to do that because it stinks so bad. And yet, I don't know, I'm just confess this to you this morning, I don't know that I view the things of this world like that trash can, like the inside of that trash can where worms are eating through the bags. I don't think I view the world. In fact, I prize this world and I prize the things of this world so much that it's hard for me to let go of them. Even if it's just my plans for the day, my schedule for the day, what I want to do. See, we need, we need to wake up tomorrow with a perspective that all of this, it's not that it's unimportant. It's not that your family is unimportant. It's not that your job is unimportant. It's not that um, the things you have, the possessions you have, it's not that your house is unimportant and that you need to go home and torch it. I'm not telling you to do that. What he's doing here is making a comparison. And when you take all of the things of this life, stack them on top of one another, and all of its grandeur and glamour, Gaining the whole world, if you will. Gaining Christ. There's no comparison. Christ surpasses it in every way. And that's what Paul is getting at. And I notice, again, Paul did not gain this knowledge through theological reflection, but by receiving the revelation of Jesus Christ. Acknowledging Him as Lord. As His Lord submitting himself in every thought and every action of his life to Christ Jesus and knowing him in a life-shaping way. 
and rejecting everything else in this world as refuse and garbage. I found this quote recently about what Christ calls us to be from an old preacher. I don't remember who it was. But to give credit to whom credit is due, it is, this isn't my words. But in preaching to his people, he said, The cross does not give us a minor shift or two to our worldly lifestyle of materialism, love of money, and desire for prominence in this life. No, the cross radically disrupts the very center and citadel of your life from self to Christ. There's no minor shift. There's no tweaking that happens when you become a Christian. It is a radical shift, a radical change from self to Christ. This resurrected life surprises the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. Verse 9 says, And being found in Him, not having the righteousness of my own, but the righteousness of Christ. As you know Christ, as you come to know Him, and as you continue to know Him, you, you realize it's not my righteousness, it's His righteousness. Referring to justification, that wonderful act of God in which He forgives all of our sins and then imputes Christ's righteousness to our account through our faith in Jesus. What does it mean to gain Christ and share in His righteousness? Because Paul is saying here in verse 9, And may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It is something that He is pursuing by faith. He counts all things as loss in order to have this righteousness. This faith is not passive, but active. It's working itself out in a life that values Christ as His ultimate treasure, and pursuing the righteousness of Christ to be more like Him, to be found in Him, found serving Him, found knowing Him. Verse 10, there's a crescendo here at the end of this first point where he says, that I may know Him. He just, he just, can't, he just can't contain himself anymore. That my aim in my life is to know Him. His goals or Christ-centered, to gain Christ, to be found in Christ, and to know Christ. And he wants to know Christ in three different ways. He wants to know Him in Christ's resurrection power. Think of that this morning as we've been singing about the resurrection and now talking about living the resurrected life. He says he wants to experience God knowing Christ in the power of His resurrection. This is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And this power is available to us as believers, as we know God. But one thing that this should help you with is this present knowledge that we have of the resurrection of Christ, the fact that He is going to resurrect our lowly bodies and make our body like His one day, that He's going to wipe away all tears from our eyes, the fact that He is coming again to establish His kingdom He's going to have everything subject to Himself as He promised. All of that should give us hope in our present suffering. Because all of this life will be pointless without that resurrection. Have you seen the power of the resurrection at work in you? Paul had seen this happen in Philippi. Remember, 
He's writing to the Philippians, so we can't divorce this from Acts 16 and what followed, right? What happened in the jail? Well, before that, what happened in the city? I mean, the raucous, the, everyone wanted to kill him. And Silas too, and they throw him in jail. What happened in jail? Was that it? Was that the end of Paul? No. No jail could hold the power of the resurrection. What happened in that jail is what Paul is describing here. What happened in your heart when Christ threw open the jail cell and you walked out free of your sin is what happened in the power of the resurrection in your life as a Christian. The church at Philippi began with this power being put on display where even the very jailer, the very executioner becomes a Christian in his family. And everyone was marveling at what God was doing. He also wants to experience God in sharing in Christ's suffering. This word sharing is not the idea of two kids in the sandbox sharing because mom is making them. Okay? It's, it's the idea of partnership. It's the idea of koinonia. Partnering up with someone else. And so we partner up with Christ and share in His suffering. You're sharing a part of what Christ experienced here when He went to the cross, when you suffer for His name. 1 Peter 2.21 says, We're called to this, to follow in His steps. And we should view our suffering in light of the cross of Christ. But Paul is saying, not that he gives a mental assent to that, he says he wants to know Christ in that. His aim is to experience the power of the resurrection in the midst of the suffering that he experiences, knowing that he's partnering with Christ. And then to experience God through becoming Christ, becoming like Christ in his death. It could be that he had a sense of his own execution in mind because he was in jail when he wrote this. It could be that his awareness of being baptized in the death of Christ to be freed from sin, or it could just be his sufferings for the gospel that he was reflecting on and how Christ was obedient unto death himself. But I think we find the answer in Philippians 2. He wanted to become like Christ in his death. Listen to Philippians 2, beginning of verse 5. Let this mind be in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ's attitude was, not my will, but your will be done. I will humble myself. I'll empty myself and come and become what I created. Become humiliated and humbled by being on a cross of wood that I made, that I spoke into existence. Becoming obedient to death. He wants to become like Christ and how He lives, and how He dies, how He suffers, and to experience that power of the resurrection. 
Verse 11 tells us, in order that I might attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul is looking ahead to what is going to happen to all of us when Christ returns. And the dead in Christ will rise. Death does not have the last word. Paul expresses this hope that he will participate in Christ's victory over death itself. No power, neither the power of the Roman Empire or the power of Jewish religion can compete with the power that can raise the dead. On these next few points, we won't get to spend as much time on. But not only do we see that we must prize the surpassing value of losing all to know Christ, number two, let's press on toward the goal of Christ. This is one of my most favorite statements that that Paul makes in all of the Bible. He says, not that I've already obtained, not that, I have, not that I've arrived here. I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea about, about me here. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. I want to apprehend that which has apprehended me. Christ has taken hold of me, Paul says. I want to take hold of Him. Paul is not along for the ride here until Christ comes or when he is raptured into heaven or when he dies and goes absent from the body is present with the Lord. He's not coasting here. He's not drifting here. Christ is too precious for that. He presses on. He strives. He reaches. He longs. He aches. He yearns to obtain the fullness and perfection of the presence of Jesus. Why? Because He has already made me His own. I reach for Him because He has already reached and holds me in those unbreakable bonds of love. This is what it means to treasure Christ above everything else. And as it says here in 15 through, um, through 17, which we won't get to talk much about, but to challenge each other, mentor each other, sharpen each other to do that same thing. In the midst of Philippi, we see the same thing in our own culture, surrounding paganism and a culture that seeks to press us into its mold. This can extinguish the enthusiasm that Paul is giving here. Many of the people in Philippi had succumbed to the pressure, gone back on their commitment to Christ, fell back into the popular immorality of the culture. And Paul seeks to inspire them and us to get back in the race. Live up to your commitment to Christ. Christ's apprehension of Paul means that Paul had been captured by Christ, taken hold of Christ, and Christ will not let go of him. That is a reality for us as well. Christ will never let you go. But are you seeking to lay hold of him because of that? I love the songs, Oh Love, that will not let me go. But there should be a response to that love where you seek to know Him and you find your joy and satisfaction in pursuing Him. Verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as laying hold of it yet. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't think I, have, I don't think I have both hands on this yet. That's what he's saying. But... That's not stopping Paul. But this one thing that I do, this one focus, this singular focus I have, 
is I forget what lies behind and I reach forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting what is behind and reaching forward is a dramatic illustration for us. It's the idea of a runner who refuses to look back over his shoulder, but keeps straining every fiber of his being towards the goal. There's no wasted energy. There's no, there's no thinking of what happened here or, how is that, or who else is around me or what else is around me. I'm just focused completely on Christ. What are the things he's forgetting? What are the things he's choosing to forget, I should say? I'm sure they never left his mind. What is he choosing to forget? Maybe he's thinking back to his days as the zealous persecutor. Look, if you would, back in, um, in verse number 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He's naming this. He's saying, I used to do this. Forgetting that. Forgetting even the successes that he has. Not being distracted by the trophies of the past or the failures of the past. He emphatically chose to disregard it. There's a story of Eric Little, an Olympic runner in the 1920s, who was portrayed in the movie Chariots of Fire. Before the 24 Olympics, he, he ran a race, in, a qualifying race in July of 1923 a race that was over a quarter of a mile, 400 meters. And it wasn't even the first bend of the track that he trips over another Englishman and stumbles to the ground into the infield. One lap around the track. That's it. By the time Eric Little had his faculties together and was able to get up, everyone was chanting from the stands, get up! Get up. He finally gets up. 30 yards ahead of him is everyone else. But Little attacked them with such a pace that he overtook the last man, the Englishman who struck him down, three yards from the line and won the race before he collapsed over the finish line. This is what a newspaper said. The circumstances in which Little won the event made it a performance bordering on the miraculous. Eric got up, never looked back, and strained and pressed toward that finish line. He wasn't thinking about who just knocked me down. How did this all happen? Is someone going to call a foul on him, complaining to the judge? All he saw was the goal in front of him. He blocked the crowd out. He blocked everything that just happened to him. He blocked the pain that he felt at running at such a fast pace and then to fall down on the cinder track. He strained. He pressed toward the finish line. That's the idea here. It's forgetting the past and giving yourself freedom to strain toward the future. It's really the only time this word is mentioned in the New Testament, this idea of straining towards the goal. His body is bent forward. Paul, his hand is stretching out toward the goal. His eyes are fastened on it. Every thought, every emotion reaches out in eager anticipation to arrive at that goal. And what is that goal? The upward, the heavenward call 
the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This word heavenward indicates both the direction of the call and the origin of the call. We're moving this way. We're going upward. We're going towards heaven. But heaven has told us how to run. It's God's call from above. And it is a call toward a heavenly reward where we receive the treasure, Christ Jesus Himself. This future goal of winning the prize captured Paul's complete attention, set him free from the tyranny of the past, filled his present life with the incentive to press on, to take hold of what Christ had taken him hold of. But not only do we see the surpassing value of losing all to know Christ, to press on to the goal, we also see that this resurrected life pushes against the contrasting life without Christ. Paul takes a moment and he starts weeping as he is speaking to these Philippians. Look, if you would, in verse 18. After he tells them to mentor one another and sharpen one another and challenge each other, he says... In verse 18, For many walk of whom I've often told you. He doesn't give names here, but apparently they they knew who he was talking about. And I tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul places a fork in the road here. It's a radical choice between the Christ-centered life and the self-centered life. The life of self-indulgence or the life pursuing Christ alone. They're enemies of the cross. Paul's words are harsh in the next verse, but they are with emotional pain. His heart is broken over this. He mourns over these enemies of the cross. But look at the contrast. The resurrected life, pursuing Christ. Everything is about Him. Everything is about His righteousness. And everything else in this life is loss in comparison to that. Now look at the contrast in verse 19. Their end is not resurrection or life. It is destruction. Their God is not Jesus Christ. It is their own desires, their appetite, their belly. Whose glory is their shame. Now, he's not talking about food there when he says belly. It's just the inner desires, the passions. You're a slave to your own desire. Your glory is in your shame. They don't even realize what they're glorying in is refuse and rubbish. It's nothing. And Paul is in intense emotional pain over this because he knows they've, they've, they've made the reverse trade. They've traded everything of Christ for rubbish, for nothing. The people in view here believe they've already arrived at their desired end through pursuing their own desires and goals. And nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. And Paul's challenge will not allow us the possibility either of serving two masters. Either your God is your passions or your God is Jesus Christ. Either you will consider everything lost because of the worth of knowing Christ or you'll pursue earthly things. Your mind will be set on earthly things as it ends in verse 19. Either you'll pursue the upward call of God in Christ Jesus or you will end in destruction. What has captured your gaze this morning? Do you find yourself a slave to your desires? 
Paul says you can be free from all of that if you just prize the surpassing value of knowing Christ, living out the resurrection that has taken place in your life. But not only should we pursue Christ, know Christ, press on to Christ, push against the Christless life, we must also consider, lastly, the resurrected life passionately anticipates the future and powerful triumph of Christ himself. Verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. This is where we're headed, the upward call of God, the heavenward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now our citizenship is there. That's where our home is. As Pastor Nathan so eloquently put, we are a community of exiles. We are, we are pushing towards heaven. That is the homeland. And we anticipate that. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ, as He comes, we wait for Him. He comes and He transforms our humble state to be conformed with the body of His glory. And He does this through the power He has to subject all things to Himself. Think battle of Armageddon. Think when Jesus is toe-to-toe with all the armies, with all the firepower that this world and and Satan himself and all his demons can muster, and he just says, it's over. (laughs) It's done. The sword comes out of his mouth, and it's over. And Christ is victorious. And then, what is sung as a hymn in, in Philippians 2, verse 11, where it says in, And following where it talks about Christ, Jesus will be confessed as Lord. Every knee will bow. That power is used to conform us to His body. The close connection here is interesting here between the language of the Romans and Paul's terminology comes into sharper focus here. He says, we eagerly await a Savior from our homeland, Jesus Christ. In the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus was acclaimed to be the Savior of the world. He came to restore order and peace throughout every region according to his sovereign rule. And Paul uses that term Savior again in his letter to the Christians in a Roman colony called Philippi, sharply opposing Jesus Christ and Caesar himself. Caesar is not the one we look at. Some world leader is not whom we look at. Even our own president is not whom we look to. It is Jesus Christ. We eagerly await Him. Because our citizenship is there. In one sense, Christ does have the right to rule the universe because He is God, not because He died and rose again. But look at God's beautiful plan here. God the Father decreed that the most fitting and good and right thing for the one who rules the world would be the one who gave himself for the world and suffered with us and for us. We need to marvel at this together. Marvel at Christ's power subjecting all things to himself. Stand back and be amazed at the power of the resurrection to transform our bodies fit for heaven. I think back to Acts 16 when Paul and Silas were singing hymns to God at midnight in the jail. And now he's writing this letter from a Roman prison to Christians in Philippi, this hymn of praise to glory and their Redeemer, the one 
who is the resurrection, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Are you living out the resurrected life today? Have you been redeemed? Today would be a wonderful day for you to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and then to live in light of His resurrection.